Welcome to the AD Aesthete with me, Mitch Owens, AD's Decorative Arts Editor. Philanthropist, scholar, pundit, provocateur, and man of the world, Mitchell Mickey Wolfson collects with a purpose. For more than 30 years, he has paid tribute to world culture, exploring it through political movements and societal shifts in objects ranging from everyday utensils to sculpture, graphic design, architectural fragments, stained glass windows, and other media, many of them long overlooked by more conventional scholars. More than 80,000 of his treasures fill the Wolfsonian Museum in Miami Beach, and more than 18,000 have found a home at the Wolfsoniana Museum and Research Center in Genoa, Italy, where the one-time diplomat and writer lives part-time. His adventures and acquisitions are being celebrated in A Universe of Things, Mickey Wolfson Collects, a new exhibition on view at the Wolfsonian Museum through November 2020. I hope you enjoy the show. I'd like to talk about before you get before you became a Marxist. <laughs> I was a humanist, and I still am a humanist because I think that the language you speak determines the forms you make, and the forms you make identify your spirit or the spirituality in the individual. You know, matter, matter has no life. It has no intelligence and it has no truth. It's only what men and women give to it that enlivens it. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in how the enlightenment of mankind um, has given um, uh, identity to uh, matter. What you've just said reminds me very much of my first visit to the Wolfsonian, and for the very 12. first, I was twelve. I actually, remember. I was, may have been twenty-two, but I, I was close, somewhere around that age. But I remember being hugely moved by the fact that I wasn't, and I hope this doesn't sound stupid or ignorant, but it will, and I don't mind, that I wasn't looking necessarily at a bronze statue. I was looking at, say, a bronze statue that carried with it an enormous and rather powerful political viewpoint or social viewpoint, so much so that it made me sort of re-examine just average aspects of daily design life, what that's, was behind it. That's what, that is our ambitious. Our ambition is to agitate. Um, and yes, you're going to be some people will be slightly discomforted, slightly, by the material they see. But this effect of agitation, I hope, will stimulate you to think about things and to enlarge all of our perspectives on life and on humanity. So if you had that, you succeeded. That's the effect we want. And um, my family was in the motion picture business, and to sell a movie to the public, you always had to have a gimmick. Mm -hmm. So the first gimmick was the Museum of Decorative and Propaganda Arts, which was to slightly shock people because propaganda is such a word. It's that a loaded word. A loaded word. And thus, 
I wanted to um, have people question. And Americans are fabulous because when they question, they usually find out why and what the answer to their question is. So they don't use that anymore, decorative and propaganda arts. That's the journal we publish. Um, they don't use the word museum because that is forbidden. We use educational resource. The museum is neither an art nor a history museum. It is a cultural experience or a cultural uh, resource for um, education. And more than education, much more than education, it's for understanding and tolerance and a review of the human condition. It's interesting to me when you said the word intolerance because some of the most beautiful, I think one could argue, and affecting objects in the collection of the Wolfsonian are objects that carry an ugly thought or a crushing thought politically or socially. When you look back at political movements, you're sort of amazed at the knitting together of beauty and propaganda. But man is the apogee of animals, the quintessence of dust. We have the highest potential, and we are still animals. So we are what we are. And I tried to um, design an overview, a prismatic view of uh, us and our condition. So you can't deny within us we have evil and good and beauty and ugliness. Um, why not admit it and find out why it's there spiritually, intellectually, and aesthetically? So how did the museum begin, the Wolfsonian, or how did your collecting within this prismatic approach to design that tells a story, that has a narrative, begin? Because I know you, you had hopes of being an artist in your youth, and there was a moment where you were uh, in uh, the diplomatic corps. Yes. How did you decide on this as your vehicle? You know, I, I'm, I'm um, the hunter-gatherer. I'm not the hoarder. So none of it did I have to live with. I live with a very eclectic bunch of things left behind or left aside or left asunder. But the formal part, of course, are in buildings. But nevertheless, the first thing I reached out for was from the crib. But the first thing I really collected, though I'm not a collector, I'm a preservationist, the only three things in life I wanted were what little kids in my generation wanted, not to be a policeman, but I wanted to own a castle, and I didn't want to be a fireman, I wanted to own a train. And then I was curious by nature, so I wanted the opportunity to travel where and when I wanted. Um, I had the train. Um, they're now in museums from Istanbul to um, Tennessee. And the car, the most famous car I had, was the car that was used in the film Some Like It Hot with Marilyn Monroe and Tony Curtis and everybody. So those are the three things I wanted. The collection itself of 250,000 objects and 75,000 books. 
I didn't want, I have no sense of possession. So I always had the intent uh, to put it into the public service. I was educated um, by my father and my grandfather to do so. So I, I, I had always meant for it to go, in the beginning I thought museum, but then the word was inappropriate and we came up with educational resource. And the first thing I bought, which had meaning to me, I was 12 years old from Miami, Florida, and uh, my parents took me to Paris, and my father gave me five, what did they use in those days? I remember, francs. <laughs> and he said, spend it on whatever you want, but go with your older brother, older and wiser, and he'll help you. <laughs> so we went to the bookstalls along the Seine, and the first thing I saw was an oversized red book that said The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Well, I said, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, that has to do with the sea, I live on the sea, let's look inside. My brother opened the book to the scene of the albatross gliding above the ship locked in ice. Well, of course, I'd never seen ice, nor an albatross, nor a ship looking like that. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I had no references for that. And I fell madly in love with it because I thought it was so dramatic. And I said, I want that, I want it, I want it, I want it, as little kids do. So I paid my five francs. And once I bought it, my brother said, now Mickey, I'm gonna teach you a little lesson, don't be angry. But if you buy things like this, you should know a little more. You should ask the dealer more and find out what he has to say. Now, not everything he says is going to be correct or even honest, but at least you'll get more information than you have at 12 years old. And I said, what's wrong? What did I do wrong? He said, well, you bought the second edition of the book, and you should have waited and found the first edition. Because if you have the first edition of a book, it's more prestigious, it's more valuable, and it has a certain a romance about it. It's a nice book, and the second edition isn't bad, but there we are. Seventy years later, um, my librarian um, discovered that it was the second issue of the book, but the first edition in English, published in London. Uh. So that was a good lesson. So now I really listen to the dealer, to the seller, and uh, I take it all with a grain of salt because sometimes they embellish, sometimes they don't know. But it doesn't make any difference. They know more than me. And I'm interested to see why they were interested in the object. Now, those objects that you speak about, they're not isolated. They all join together to tell a story. They're all part of a narrative. They're the pieces, the mosaic which completes a narrative. So it's a new language. It's the language of objects. And since the objects are made by, made by men and women, I think they're more honest than history, which is always written by the winner or with a particular point of view. Mm -hmm. And you know you can say what you want, and a lot of demagogues say, and people believe them for a time until they discover other truths. So you must be careful what people say, and you must be careful 
of of history, but not of objects. Because but don't those objects, many of them, embody the words in a decorative fashion? Well, that's what I'm interested in because I believe that des- design, because it's human, is determinate. Mm. And I'm a little upset because I find recently there's a new determinism which uh, shocks me and worries me. Uh, Before, objects were interpreted in a humanistic way, with human values. Now, unfortunately, it looks to me like design is oftentimes made for a particular economic class, and also uh, the object is determined by the economics of the period. And that really was a Marxist-Leninist idea that our society, everything we do, including what we eat, was determined by an economic determinism. And it's very interesting now with the fashion of food and the fashion of design Mm -hmm. and the fashion of architecture. It looks to me like it's not representative of humankind, but it's representative of a particular economic class built purposely um, with that in mind. So that is a kind of, um, that's a kind of Marxism. Is there and a I'm, building or, or a design that you've, that's particularly um, said this to you of late? There are buildings all over the world that is said to me uh, this. One is the museum at the confluences of the two rivers in um, Lyon. Another is the Philharmonic Hall in Paris. Certainly the shed here is a perfect example. It's a scandal, and it's not safe. There are lots of buildings and there's lots of design, not for the people, but for a class, mm-hmm. and uh, built by architects who pander to that class, and that's economic determinism. But at the Wolfsonian, it's, it's, it's always had this humanistic point yeah. of view in terms of whether it's an object or a book yep. or a... Yeah, it's, it's uh, man made it, and it's the human condition that determined it, and um, I want to know about uh, men and women. I want to know um, what makes us make decisions, good, bad, and indifferent. It's sociology, it's anthropology, it's economics too, but it's, it's, it really is a humanist uh, celebration. I think that's the one thing that I've always been fascinated by uh, about objects in general is I was just in Finland and going through the, the, the Museum of Helsinki, the Art Architecture Museum of Helsinki, the Design Museum in Helsinki, and looking at all of these really very beautiful, very basic objects that have a, a very broad appeal. I wanted to know the story of that glass, who made it, why they made it, what was going on in Finnish society at the time they made it, who were they being affected by, Personally, I'm accused of liking pretty things. Well, I do. That that attracts me at first. But I, then I want to know all the layers and the, all the backstory because every teacup is an encyclopedia. In other words, you want to know the truth. 
And the truth, in Finland, it's a perfect prime example. There was no Finland. And Finland, except in the ancient times. So when Finland evolved in our modern period, controlled by Russia and Sweden, Finland lost its identity. And the Finns were determined to create a new identity for a new country. And they used the past, the historic past, because they had reference to it mm. and they knew how to use it. And so they celebrated their past in a modern idiom. The vocabulary is the Finnish past. The context is modern. And as that developed, as the Finns developed their new identity with the new artist, romantic nationalism, mm, which if is you an will. amazing movement. Amazing. It's everywhere. It's in Bulgaria. I've just been to Bulgaria, and that's a perfect example. It's in all the new countries. It's, as you know, Germany, Italy, Finland, Hungary, Bulgaria. Turkey, you could go on. Mm. There are more new countries than we think because the old countries either had been isolated or destroyed by empires which which had taken them as colonial uh, possessions, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they dominated. We once did an exhibition called British Empire, Style of Empire, it was a magnificent title. It was brilliant and dazzling. However, the fade, the move, the show failed to produce a style of empire, because most of it was British arts and designs imposed, right. uh, and some very little gratuitous permissions to add certain design elements of uh, India and uh, other countries. Which they, but they used design to integrate their empire as the Austrians did too. Right. But these countries, romantic nationalism evolved into nationalism and then evolved into a destructive force. Mm. When it, the pride in country becomes lockstep, becomes, I don't even know how you would describe it other than just an oppressive language. An oppressive that you language. You can barely see the, that, that, that genesis of national pride becoming something else and becoming something else so quickly. Yeah. That's what I find really very, very interesting is, is, is how, how quickly national pride can evolve into um, a, a just an oppressive... Um, and you can read it so easily and there's no hesitation in, it, in the interpretation. However, if you write it as history... Or if you depict it in other ways, it's not so forceful and not so obvious because it's always very subjective mm -hmm. and uh, there's more uh, manipulation involved there. Well, I know in looking, that was, like I said, one of the, the, the huge strengths for me in my first visit to the Wolfsonian was following what looked to be innocent objects that carry all sorts of um, hopeful stories, unpleasant stories, um, political movements. I mean, to be able, 
that's something we have gotten completely away from in a world of design. A salt shaker doesn't necessarily reference a political movement any longer. Because we've lost the references. The tragedy of our day is the references have been left behind. And young people today um, have no references. They only begin in the middle of everything. Mm -hmm. And um, the future is completely unknown and a void. They can't even imagine uh, a future. They have no references to the past, so they have no evolution. So it's easy for them to become revolutionists because they have no um, actually education in the past. And thus, as Marcuse, they're not, they've liberated themselves from the past, but they got themselves in a terrible um, condition and situation with no references. And salt peppers, if you go, salt and shaker peppers, mm. huh? if you go back into history, you will find the most brilliant um, interpretations, understandings, where they came from, how then where the salt came from. Right, exactly. Pe- I mean, a salt shaker is encyclopedic. Exactly. And that's what I've, I love about design is that infinity of knowledge that something very small can contain from technological advances to advances in artistry to social movements to social contracts to the popularity of a drink. Man, their design is our opera. It's all within the opera, all what you said, all the elements. And design is the individual's opera, made by man or woman, but with every force and every bit of knowledge and every experience and every reference that he has, he or she has. So an opera is our, you might say, achievement or our way of... Men and women make things. We're workers. Mm -hmm. That's the definition of us. We work. Men and women work. The Italian constitution, the first line is, Italy is based on work. It, it is acknowledged that that's, that separates us from all others, from all others. We work, and what we work and what we make is our opera because it contains so many elements. So you're right. Uh, design is the individual's expression, and it comes from within. So a good design is not m- simply material, but it's spiritual. And you look at everything from designs that are completely unknown as to who made them, as much as it is someone famous made them. They're they're all on an equal plane as far as you're concerned. In that I'm very democratic because uh, people ask me what my favorite object is. I have no favorite object because the objects are all part of a gigantic mosaic, and I fill in the pieces as I go. And I was never, in the beginning, I was never interested in the individual object. Mm. I was interested in multiples. That's why books appealed to me. But um, we do have individual objects because as you go along, you acquire all sorts of things. 
And that's another theory I have, which my father said that I was absolutely mad, and perhaps he is, but, but philosophically, you know, I've never expended a penny. I've never spent a penny on anything. So people say, what's it worth? How much it's worth? It's worth what it is, because I exchanged one value for another. Now, I didn't sell, so I never realized. Right. The, the, but that didn't interest me. It's how I felt about it, that I was making an exchange of one value for another value to create something with that value that I couldn't create with another. So that was a kind of artistic, if you will, choice. And I did want to be everything but a uh, preservationist. I mean, I wanted to be a conductor, whatever it is, a poet or a, a painter. Just and not a fireman. Just not a fireman. <laughs> I did want to be a newspaper delivery boy. But my, I did desperately. But my mother forbade it because she said, now, Mickey, think of all those poor children that really need to, um, you know, the money. Have, and have, I have said, I need the money, too. She said, just keep quiet. Go on with the studies. <laughs> Now you have also the Wolfsoniana in Genoa. Yep. How does that differ from the Wolfsonian? Uh, the Wolfsonian is masculine, and Mr. Smithson died in Genoa, and oh. he was sent back and buried in the wall of the castle, they call it the castle at the Smithsonian, in Washington. He was English, and he gave his fortune to us, the United States, to build the Smithsonian. But he did die in Genoa, and he was buried briefly in a cemetery near my house there. And then he was sent home in this big well. But um, that was my inspiration. Like Thomas Wolfe was my literary, he tried to gather it all together. Of course, no one conceded gathering it all, but the synthesis is there. So that's the Wolfsonian. And we thought it was such a, a, a cute uh, idea of Wolfsonian, Smithsonian. Uh, Italy was another thing. That was a harder nut to crack. So I looked. Um, I'm a sadomasochist, and that's why I live in France, so I suffer. And I love to make the fridge people suffer, too. That gives me <laughs> enormous pleasure. So I looked for a, a name for Genoa. And my name is already difficult enough, since W doesn't exist in the Italian alphabet. So we, it's V-Dopio. That's W, double V. So they had a little trouble already with Wolfson. So I said, how can I make them suffer? So I looked around and I went to Florence and I saw it. I saw the Medici Library, the Lorenziana. So I said, it's too good to be true. And I'm from America and I can get away with it. I'm gonna call it the Wolfsoniana and the hell with them. <laughs> Now, how does the does does no. the collection differ there? No, no, yes, uh, the collection is ninety nine point nine percent Italian, eighteen eighty five to nineteen forty five. Now, why uh, that span? We you know we collect we don't collect anymore territorially. In the last century, we collected objects from Germany, England, the different countries. With the new century, we changed all that and we collect linguistically. So I collect in Miami men and women who make things speaking German, no matter where the territory is, Italian, Dutch, English, Japanese, Slavic, 
uh, mostly Russian and Celtic, mm. with the largest uh, museum. Has we have the large, even more than Rennes in France, with the largest collection of uh, Celtic material, and that is autonomous. That was f in Brittany, and I'm very interested in the the, the Britons wanted autonomy. Um, from France, and they created a ro uh, romantic nationalist style, which wasn't innocent. They got into trouble, like the, the Basques and the Irish, mm -hmm. because um, the trouble they got into is the Germans were some clever and offered the people from Brittany independence in the new um, reorganization of Europe after the war. And many collaborators... Um, believed uh, that, and naive as they were, and a movement called Sesbreu movement, an autonomous movement, was launched, but there always was a tradition in Brittany because they had their own language and the French forbade mm. it and so forth. So those are my, and then Italian. So the Italian, much of it uh, came to America when we were allowed to um, export objects that were 50 years old. And I started in the old days. So that material came to Miami, but the rest of the material we've kept in Italy. Mm. And that I gave to the Ducal Palace in Genoa and the city of Genoa and the region of Liguria. And the one in Miami I gave to the state of Florida and the university at FIU. I didn't give it all. I gave about... I guess half of it maybe. Mm -hmm. So I kept back um, half of it and I give it from time to time if they do something right, which they do a lot. <laughs> what are you still looking for? Unfortunately, I, don't, I think you look I at become, everything. I know, I become routine. Uh, it, it shocks me. Uh, I look for the same, except they've expanded my horizons in Miami. I, it's now 1850 to 1950 while it was always the less democratic time, mm -hmm. was 1885 to 1945. And there it stayed in um, Italy, 1885 to 1945, more or less. That's the, that's the high, that's the period. So what's the reason of pushing it back, the, the timeline well, to 1850? Because I was wrong with my reasons for choosing 1885 to 1945. Um, 1945, I thought, was the end of the old world order. Well, the end of the old world order didn't end until the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I thought 1885, mm -hmm. it was uh, the time of fantastic Scottish and British um, design. So I thought it was the time of the beginning of the modern age. And I was wrong there because the beginning of the modern age really begins in 1848. So um, I had been too arbitrary in my original decision. So what was 1848 for? Well, 1848 was, you know, the revolution. Right. Over the, and so they did 1848, they did 1850. Mm -hmm. They do 1850 to 1950. But that's not, I'm not interested in that. Um, the curators and the acquisition committee, uh, I do my thing. If you see it, you yeah, but will, I, will I, get it for the museum. But I would get it in my period. Right. Uh, they have some money for acquisitions, and they can do what they want. Is there a specific period? I know you collect across multiple periods for your f philosophy behind them, both museums. Is, is there a particular period that you find especially fertile that really 
excites you um, from a design con uh, the d design politics social no, confluence no 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 that's an interesting question very interesting question provocative too but um no um uh, f for my 18 85 to 1945 i mean filled with so i don't have i don't have a favorite mm. school period or author because i don't much care about the right. author since everything's done by somebody, right. one late finds out sooner or later who the author um, is. What are some of the recent things that you've purchased, if not for yourself, for no, the I don't buy any. I don't. I don't buy anything for myself. I don't even buy clothes anymore. I do, what do I buy for my trip? Tri I buy transportation for myself. Oh. I've just come back from Bulgaria. Uh, two weeks, yes, and I'm going after Christmas to uh, once again. I was there uh, 25 years ago, but I'm going back to Algeria, and then I'm going to West Africa much later, much later mm. in the year. So that I do and, and like. What do I buy? I buy books. I buy books on papers, sculpt everything. Mm. I mean, I'm offered uh, Arnold Breaker of uh, Lefar, Serge Lefar, who ran the Paris Opera the ballet of the Paris Opera during the Nazi occupation of France. And he was a collaborator, but he was forgiven after the war. He was the famous uh, Russian-French um, empresario. And Arnold Breaker um, did a sculpture of his, and the family wants to sell it to us. And then I bought um, a very interesting rug in um, Bulgaria of the period used for marriage. So there's the date of the marriage and the initials mm -hmm. of the marriage. That has a, a reference to a Bulgarian marriage and all who these people were and what so on and so on. And furniture. Um, there was a company in Vienna who made all the furniture for Hoffman. He didn't make the furniture. He designed it. And then he gave it to a magnificent furniture company. And the Stockley House, yes, for example, in Brussels. was all made by this company for Hoffman. And they had their own in-house designers. And these in-house designers didn't have, name, <laughs> didn't have the fame of Hoffman, but they were exceedingly good and influenced by the people that they designed for. And I bought a piece of furniture. The rest of the suite went to Vienna, but... You didn't need the whole thing. A dining room console, very interesting, with the first example of uh, wraparound glass. Not slabs of glass, but right. glass that had a curve. curve. Yeah. And that okay. dates from? That dates from about 1902, I think. So that is a very early. Very, very. And it was, it's a modernist piece. So, see, that interests me because I don't care. The best museums in the world have the Hoffman. I, I have Hoffman, but I didn't need that. But the factory, how interesting for historians or academics, the factory that made the furniture had an in-house who, who made this. And the most famous suite of Hoffman is in Australia. And um, this fa company made it. There is the Titanic rug. Well, right, this is part of the exhibition yes, yes. The, at the Wilsonian Founders' Choice. Yeah, and the Titanic rug. The universe of things. Universe of things with its galaxies. Uh, that's interesting because, of course, it's not 
the rug at the bottom of the sea. Though I like to tell people it took me years to try it out and then the Metropolitan. <laughs> Everything I say has a bit of truth in it. The fact is, um, when the Olympic, the sister ship of the um, Titanic sailed, it sailed with carpets made by Lady de Vesey. Now, Lady de Vesey had a great house in Ireland, and the women in the property, their husbands worked too hard and the women drank too much. So she was determined to give the women a project, and the project was going to be tapestry. No, w weaving, mm. rugs. That was brilliant, except they didn't know how to do them. And so when they were placed on the Olympic, um, the rugs never made it to um, New York. They didn't sink. They just wore out. So the poor uh, Canard Steamship Company had to go to Sears and Roebuck and bought temporary tapestries for the Olympic. And when it came home, the company was furious at Lord and Lady de Vesey. And they said, get your act together or you're going to lose the contract, even though you own 3% of the company. So she found a Turk who taught them how to do tapestries. And the um, Canard Steamship Line ordered three, one for 14 years, the next for... Uh, and, of course, the one went down. Right. Uh, the second one uh, was burnt in the bombardments of Belfast in the Second World War. It was in the warehouse. And the third one was sold to a country club in, um, in, in Northern Ireland. And when the country club found out that it was associated with the Titanic, there were a lot of rather superstitious members, so they refused it. And that's when I came along. And now it's on display at the, the museum in the universe of things yes. at the Wolfsonian and that in is Miami. And absolutely the main tapestry. The other one at the bottom of the sea, and the other one destroyed by fire. So all the, all these have one story after another. It's sex is involved. All the things you riots want. in sex, the street, riots, politics, it's the whole thing. <laughs> Mickey, thank you very much for talking about the Wolfsonian and the Wolfsoniana and your exploration and study and constant chasing down of art that tells a story. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. The ADS-Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.